Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. And today we're going to take a look at our neighbor, Canada, and then we're going to move on and have a look at how small pharmaceutical companies can bring innovation where big ones fail to do it. But first we go to Toronto and to Professor of Public Policy and International Business at the York University in Toronto, Charles McMillan. Uh, I have been a follower of his. I think follower is the right word. I read everything he writes. I listen to what I can hear of him say. And I think he is one of the most astute commentators, not only on Canadian-US relationships and common interests, but of the whole global picture. I welcome you, Charles, to the broadcast. And as you look out from where you are in Toronto, and I might have added that you were a, an advisor to the Prime Minister, to Prime Minister Brian Mulroney when he was in power. So you've been at the center of power in Canada, looking to the US and then to the world. What do you see? Well, I'm um, optimistic and pessimistic. Um, I worry a lot about this pending China-US dispute goes far beyond trade and security. Um, we're in Canada, uh, as you know, the location, we're the center of the United States, near uh, uh, one border with the United States. We also have a huge border with Russia. In, in the Cold War, clearly we were on NATO and, and uh, the American side, if you want to put it in an American perspective, um, but we had a global perspective. Um, what is curious to Canadians is that the post-war international order was largely put together by military people, including, of course, Eisenhower after the war, when he was president, and under Truman, George Marshall. So these were people that looked at U.S. security uh, and understood the role of international alliances as a central feature. Um, what you see in the uh, China-US dispute, uh, particularly on the American side, is a retreat from um, global alliances, global partnerships, collaboration. And of course, this is uh, seen today, um, this morning's announcement, where the president, US president, may actually stop funding of the World Health Organization. Uh, the World Health Organization, you can always argue these international institutions have uh, frailties and faults. But if you look at Africa, essentially the World Health Organization acts as the public health system for most African countries. And to um, strip it of its uh, uh, funding, uh, I think is a terrible error. And of course, it didn't take long for China to pick up the slack. But if you look at France, you look at Britain, you look at Japan, you look at other countries outside North America, they see the value in uh, these international institutions the World Health Organization, the International Labor Office, and of course, more importantly for Canada in an economic sense, uh, the World Trade Organization. Stripping these international organizations um, goes back to the, the famous phrase in the King's speech. Um, you know, it's a horrible phrase. Um, might is right. Uh, in an international world, uh, small countries are as important as big countries. And um, this China, uh, U.S. dispute uh, worries a lot of Canadians. And uh, 
you know the U.S. from the inside out, as it were. You were a Fulbright scholar. When was that? Uh, about seven or eight years ago. But I know I know New England quite well. And coming from Prince Edward Island, we call the whole New England area the Boston states. <laughs> Ooh, not everybody would like that, but uh, no. it's very good. I'm always amazed at how Americans sort of fail to look north. They look east to Europe, but they don't look north. The first trip overseas that most Americans take is usually to London because I can speak the same language. And it's exotically different, but it's it's still not terrifyingly so. But not to Canada. Canada, and we don't even put map of Canada on the weather forecast. We blame Canadians when it's cold, but we don't even show the provinces on the nightly news and the weather forecast. There is a sort of conscious blindness about our large neighbor to the north. Uh, did that bother you? Has that bothered you over time? No, no, but I'll give you a small example of that. Um, we were in the White House, the Oval Office, and Ronald Reagan had a globe in the office, and we were just chatting uh, with the Prime Minister, um, just pleasantries, really. That was Mulroney, right? Brian Mulroney with Ronald Reagan. They became great friends with their Irish backgrounds and all that. And by coincidence, um, President Reagan spun the globe, and it stopped in the front of Canada. And he looked, Ronald Reagan looked at that and he said, thank God for Canada. When I get my morning briefings uh, of what's happening around the world, the last thing I have to worry about, are there troops coming from Canada? Is there an attack coming from Canada? Um, is there uh, you know, some horrible thing happening uh, where uh, Americans are going to be inflicted? And uh, he said, um, it's easy to take this country for granted. But the other side of that, Canada correctly, but with the Americans, we are well attached to state governments, mayors, uh, Toronto and, and Boston, for example, or Toronto and, uh, and Montreal, or Montreal and, and uh, New York, or um, Winnipeg and Chicago, et cetera. And l lots of joint projects, including um, the Great Lakes cleanup every summer. Uh, the New England governors meet the five Eastern Canadian premiers. Um, the same thing in Western Canada. Um, it's a regular occurrence when, for example, the Premier of Quebec uh, meets his counterparts in Virginia, Ver Vermont or, or New York um, or California or Texas. So we are much more integrated uh, in the best sense um, than a lot of people realize. So what you read in the media um, is, is kind of taken for granted. But the Reagan thing is that, uh, thank God for Canada, um, you know, we're, we're the last people who are going to attack Canada, which is why we were surprised in the, in the NAFTA negotiations uh, with the tariffs on steel and aluminum against Canada was done for national security. Uh, how do Canadians feel about the Trump administration? Wary. Um, Canada, historically um, and profoundly after the Second World War, because we were a party to the um, post-war institutions from NATO to um, uh, the United Nations, uh, GATT, came WDO, etc. And the idea that um, any country, could be Japan, could be China, um, now with Britain, with Brexit, can go it alone in today's complicated world 
this worries Canadians. And um, a small example, in Canada, we have five uh, Canadian TV stations, major ones, one in French. Um, but we have access to the five uh, broadcasters in the US, including PBS. Um, but also uh, the BBC, the French network, um, uh, the Russian network. My wife is Japanese, uh, two Japanese channels, so she watches stuff every day. So Canadians are informed of what's happening around the world probably to a much greater degree than the Americans um, who, you know, basically listen to uh, watch American broadcasting and uh, North and, and, and U.S. newspapers. What is Canada's future? When Americans wish to disparage Canada, they say it's 100 miles deep along the U.S. border and that it has a weak federal system and that the provinces are very powerful. And what is Canada's future? And what would you say to those disparaging comments? Well, Canadians are optimistic. And, you know, um, we're friends with the United States and we'll be uh, really close friends uh, for a long time. Um, we're North American, um, despite our European backgrounds and increasing now an Asian background. Um, so we pay a lot of attention to what's happening in the United States and Mexico. And I think people underestimate even in the United States, um, how much cooperation we have in so many areas, including science, including education, including arts and culture. Um, so these temporary um, disputes, whether it's on trade or uh, COVID or whatever, um, if you take a long-term view, um, we're not nearly as pessimistic um, as most people think. Um, we're, we're very much a a multilateral country. You mentioned that increasingly there's an Asian uh, dimension to Canada, and certainly when you arrive at Toronto Airport, you, you see initially a lot of Asians. It has been a country that has welcomed immigrants. What has been the experience, and what can Canada teach the U.S. about immigration? Well, I give credit for the changes taking place in this actually to uh, the Liberal Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. Um, and it started at Pearson, but basically we have a colorblind uh, immigration policy. And uh, so we welcome people from all over the world. Um, and if you take Ontario, which is the biggest province, roughly uh, 14 million people, um, we have the highest percentage of people with a university degree of any major jurisdiction in the world. So that shows you that upward mobility is taken seriously and immigration is a central feature of that. We bring talent, we bring people with uh, great sports capabilities, with great artistic capabilities, scientific capability. So we see immigration as part of our global uh, strength and if you want to call that soft power, that's what it is. Are you growing away from your originating countries of Britain and France? No, we're, we're closer now to, in many ways, Britain and, and France. Um, most Canadians are horrified by the uh, Brexit exercise um, because there's a real fear that Brexit um, will lead to the breakup of Britain, uh, which, which actually um, on paper is four countries. Um, but you get this dilemma of Northern Ireland uh, and Scotland wanting to be part of Europe for their trade uh, cultural relationships. Um, but uh, pulling out of the European uh, community.
So uh, this is another example of ca Canada trying to show some influence, but you know, th these countries can do you know, what their politicians and their governments uh, really want. You're an author, you have nine books to your name and one that has been delayed in publication by the coronavirus, uh, largely on international affairs and on trade. Uh, what is the trading future when well, we have uh, a new isolationism abroad in this country? Uh, the Brexit is, in fact, an assault on free trade in its way. What do you see as the future of trade? Are we, we beggaring ourselves? Well, I think you are. Uh, I'm, I'm a free trader uh, for all the reasons, and, and free trade helps the poor people. But in reality, free trade gives uh, consumer choice. Um, it's interesting that uh, when Justin Trudeau had to renegotiate NAFTA, um, he had the both the magna magnanimity, but the personal strength um, to recruit Brian Mulroney, um, who was well aware of what was happening in Washington, uh, to get the deal done. And um, there's no question Canada believes in the, the World Trade Organization. And this go-it-alone strategy, I, Americans um, will learn, uh, uh, hopefully with Canadian advice, that is the wrong policy for them. But temporarily, this clearly is a strategy, and I think it's bad for the United States. People forget that Canada has this large border with Russia. Uh, did you feel threatened during the Cold War, and do you feel the return of that threat? Well, of course, and, and you know, Canada, United States, and um, the Canadian Prime Minister and, and uh, uh, General Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, one of the things they set up was NORAD, which is a defense military security system um, directed basically for Canada, United States against Soviet bombers. Um, the, the related issue today uh, is actually the Arctic. And um, Brian Mulroney, to his great credit, set up the Arctic Council, um, the eight countries boarding on the Arctic. And one of the countries that wants to join that is actually China. Because, um, you know, if with global warming and all that, the shortest uh, ocean distance between Asia and Europe is through the Arctic. And um, so this is a real concern, a modern day-to-day -day, uh, 21st century concern, which fits into the Cold War issues um, of, of making sure that Canada and the United States and other allies are working on the same wavelength. Uh, Charles, you teach in a business school, and as a final question, I'd like to ask you something which perplexes me, and that is in the sudden rise of China to being a global power, but also to being a neo-colonial power in some ways, in Africa, for example. Uh, and, and South America and South America. Where have they found the managerial class? Where have they found all those managers that you need for the kinds of enterprises they've undertaken in those countries as well as commercially? To a degree that might shock uh, Americans, China um, has learned a lot from Japan, but more importantly has learned a lot from the United States. China's higher education system is really a, a duplication of the American higher education system, which consists of three things. Well-funded 
publicly funded universities, uh, private universities, and technical universities like MIT and Caltech. And um, all of these uh, great schools have engineering schools, medical schools, business schools. And I think they're doing a better job of interlinking the ideas um, between these professional schools than um, we're doing in Canada and the United States. Um, and uh, China, for example, what the leading business school, which is partly set up uh, with help from um, the consulting firms and Harvard um, in, in Shanghai, also bought a, a school that I know very well in Zurich. And part of that business school there is to train um, African managers for Chinese enterprises in, in Africa. Fascinating. Charles McMillan, Professor of Public Policy and International Business at York University in Toronto. Thank you so much for bringing your wisdom to our broadcast. Cheers. Great chatting to you. Linda Marban is Chief Executive Officer of Capricor Therapeutics in Los Angeles. Welcome to the broadcast, Linda. You are quite interesting. You run a biotechnology company uh, and you have two products which have a bearing on the virus pandemic. Tell us about those two products. Right, so we are uh, using our uh, frontline product, which is called CAP1002. Um, it is a cell therapy product that is a late stage clinical development for diseases of inflammation. Uh, the most notable is for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, where we had a readout of clinical trial data last week that was not for soft, soft positive. And that product has now uh, been deployed to treat uh, some of the inflammatory consequences of COVID-19. So if you'll permit me a moment, I'll explain the pathogenesis of COVID. COVID is a viral infection uh, that seems to take advantage of wherever its host, uh, most notably a human being, has a weakness, which is why we see this plethora of symptoms. Um, the primary symptom, of course, being a pneumonia-like um, respiratory infection. Um, oftentimes, the virus comes in and does uh, very little damage and makes the person feel bad for a little bit of time and goes away. Um, but in some small portion of people, um, once the virus has taken hold of the body, the immune, the immune system kicks into overdrive and the patient develops something called hyperimmune inflammation or cytokine storm, which basically means that their immune system starts attacking their body. And that's what actually causes these uh, late stage sequelae that we are seeing happening and uh, causes the death of, of most of the people that die from COVID. CAP-1002 targets that cytokine storm. So what we are able to do is go into these patients with severe to critical COVID-19, um, most notably those that are um, either on a ventilator or at risk of being uh, needing ventilatory support. And then we um, can give them the cells which um, have a profound immunomodulatory effect, calming down inflammation and triggering healing. Um, and this seems to be um, working effectively in the patients. Um, we have some uh, preliminary data in six patients. Uh, that data was published in a journal called Basic Research in Cardiology about a week ago. And in this uh, compassionate use series of patients, four out of the six patients were discharged within a short time of receiving the cells. And the other two um, are still critically ill, but alive. 
And uh, so we're very hopeful uh, for uh, captivity. That, that is a therapy that is only applicable to people who have the disease and are in hospital. Right, because typically the people that are at home, um, by good luck, will end up with this type of hyperinflammation um, um, or immune system activation. Uh, that typically happens and they either end up in the hospital very quickly or HAP-1002, the frontline product, we've now asked FDA and, and are planning on starting very shortly a randomized control trial where we'll treat half of the patients with placebo saline and half with the cells, and we'll be able to get a real indicator of whether it makes a difference in those patients. And so hopefully, Llewellyn, you and I will talk uh, soon when we have positive data from that and make a difference. This, this is something which could be produced on a, on a mass scale and as a vaccine. So the vaccine is different. So the vaccine is our second product. And that's the one that I personally am most excited about because we are taking the current strategies that are being used for vaccine development and sort of turning it on its ear and looking at it from a different perspective. So the most um, furthest ahead uh, vaccine candidate is one that uses a liposome. A liposome is a little tiny ball of fat invisible, and they put something inside of it called an mRNA, a messenger RNA, from one of the viral proteins. And what it does is it goes in to the body and it tells the body to recognize that viral protein as a stranger and stimulates a immune response. Now, that strategy might work well and we're all gonna knock on wood that that's going to occur. But in reality, what we've done is we said, we can build a better mousetrap. So, um, we have taken something called an exosome. An exosome is a liposome, but it's made by your body. So every cell in your body, everything that's living makes exosomes. Exosomes are found in milk, they're found in beer. Um, and they are um, also little tiny balls of fat, nanometer size, um, lipid bilayer vesicles is the science term for it. And naturally they're packed with these nucleic acids, proteins, um, and lipids, but they are targeted to cells. So they tell cells, we're here to, to do something for you. We're here to communicate with you. We are taking um, the messenger RNA, the same basic component, um, but we're using all four of the viral proteins, the S, which is the spike protein, the one that's in people now, the M, which is membrane, the E, which is envelope, and the N protein and using those and putting them into these exosomes so that we expect we're going to be able to develop a vast um, array of these uh, viral proteins that can lead to a much uh, stronger immune response. How, if it works, if the tests are positive, how long before you could mass produce it? And how would you mass produce it? Yours is a very small company doing some yeah. very exciting things, but very small. So I tell my team every day that David slew Goliath and um, you know, with every army that came against uh, the, those biblical warriors, um, it was the little guy with the slingshot. So I'm not afraid of being the little guy. Um, and you know, we of course would ultimately have proof of concept. Um, we're starting animal studies very soon. Um, and we expect that once we demonstrate proof of concept in a non-human primate, uh, we would then move um, very rapidly to find a partner for large-scale development. 
Um, we also are working with um, a large contract manufacturing organization in order to do so. You are one of a hundred or more efforts to find a vaccine. Right. Uh, and uh, how does that all work out? Are you, are you nudging each other? Are you watching each other? Or are you oblivious to each other, just pursuing the goal? I think most of the big companies are oblivious to me, which in some ways um, is a very uh, good position to be in because we're able to be sort of the sleuths um, to move uh, ahead very quickly um, and very um, efficaciously without sort of distraction. We're working with a scientist at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Dr. Stephen Gould, who um, has become one of my professional idols. He has worked in um, exosomes and uh, vaccine uh, thought development for 20 years. And now we've provided him an outlet uh, to product development in this dreaded disease. So I don't know what other companies are doing. We're working diligently 20 hours a day and keeping our head down. And. Uh... Uh, when will you know? What is the day when you cross the Rubicon? Uh, when all, I think if... To put it differently, what is the Eureka day? Uh, uh, the day that I pop that uh, colloquial champagne will be when we are able to viral challenge, so take COVID-19 and challenge um, a non-human primate. Typically, we use macaque monkeys, um, where we've vaccinated them with our vaccine, and um, we challenge them with a virus, and they don't get sick. Uh, that's when my eureka moment will be, and then we'll, of course, proceed very rapidly to human beings. Myself being the first one, by the way. <laughs> You're going to be your, your own guinea pig. First in line. <laughs> uh, I noticed that your stock, the stock for Capricorn Therapeutics, which is on the uh, 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 which is on the exchange, has gone wild. It has gone up four hundred percent or something on Nasdaq. Uh, why is that? It's mostly the compassionate use of Cap Ten O Two. I think um, our results were astounding, and, and we've been working in cell therapy for a while. And our cells are very unique. Uh, they come from the heart. We make them from isolated human hearts, um, and so they have a, a particular homing to the lungs and to the heart. And they seem to have a, a really good way of calming down that uh, tremendous inflammation that occurs um, as a sequelae to COVID nineteen. Isn't it uh, a fact that you are in a battle for talent? Don't the big pharma companies suck up all the talent? Absolutely not. So there are those of us that are small company junkies. Um, it's fun to work for a small company. You get to expand um, your opportunities in a, in a very unique way. And um, we've learned how to partner with academia, harness their abilities, and um, be able to take it forward in a much um, more efficient manner. Um, I think it's you know one of the analogies again that I use with my team is you know a big farm is like a, a big freighter uh, turning that in the swirling ocean would be very challenging. But we're a, a mid-sized sailboat; we can turn on a dime. Thank you so much for coming on our broadcast, and I wish you many eureka moments in your future. Thank you, Lamont. It was a lovely uh, journey talking to you. Cheers. That is our program for today. We thank you so much for coming along, and we hope that in our isolation, in the confinement, you are finding new treasures and rich things to do that you might not have thought to do.
in normal times. Mind how you go. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We are there.